Good morning, everybody. This morning, we're back in Ezekiel. Continuing on, we're going to cover chapter 2, verse 9, to chapter 3, verse 11. And I've entitled this, God must turn me upside down before I can turn the world upside down. And we'll see why. I've called it that in a minute. So let's start with our memory verse, and then we'll pray. You ready? So let's all say it out loud. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So last week we covered a message called the call to ministry, the purpose of our calling. So I just want to read a couple of scriptures that summarize the calling for every believer. Okay, that's the emphasis here, is for every believer. So 2 Corinthians 5, 7 and 21 from the NNT paraphrase says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Notice that God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. It's a gift. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin, or literally to be sin for us, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And then in Matthew 28, 18-20, the Great Commission, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So remember, we learned last week that some people are going to reject the message. Some people are going to make it difficult for us. We're going to experience some persecution when we share the gospel. But that's normal, because they rejected Jesus. And remember why they hung him on the cross? Because they didn't like his message. And we also learned, like God told Ezekiel, we must only speak what God tells us to speak. Jesus only spoke what the Father told him to speak, and there's references there in your notes. For example, John 4.34 and 8.28. So we must, like Jesus, only speak God's words, not our own thoughts, opinions, dreams, or other ideas. So what we speak on behalf of God must line up with the Word of God. And finally, we saw God tell Ezekiel three times, what did he say? Do not be afraid. Okay. And I just want to read a verse from Hebrews. It says in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And let's pray. Father, that was last week's message, and we just thank you for those promises. And we're going to 
build on that this week. We're going to see as we come to you, there's some preparation to do, there's some changes that need to be made. So Lord, help us to have open hearts that hear what you are wanting to speak to us, what you are speaking to us. Help us to receive it. Help us to have soft hearts. Help us to be seeking you with our whole heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's jump in. Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 7 through to chapter 3 verse 15. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse. For they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Notice the difference there. But you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Literally, house of rebellion. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. We can feed on the world or we can feed on what God gives us. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me. And there was writing on the inside and on the outside. And written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely, had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel would not listen to you, because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, Receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you, and hear with your ears. And go, get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. So let's start at verse 7. It says, You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse. For they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. So this section I've titled The Scroll, a complete message from the beginning of time. So the first part in verse 9, it says, Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me. So it's either God's hand, or it's the hand of one of those angels, the cherubim. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. So 
What does the scroll represent? Well, it's the word of God. It's the words that God tells him. It's the words of God that he wants Ezekiel to receive into his heart and to hear with his ears. And then to proclaim to the nation of Israel. And to quote from David Guzik, this emphasizes that God's word was not only the spontaneous word spoken to his appointed prophets. God had a plan, a purpose, and authority for his written word. And I was thinking about that. And what it means is this. The written word of God, which we are reading now, was already written in heaven before it was spoken by the prophets. It was already written down in the scroll. God just gave it to the prophets to speak. So God's word will never change. And remember what Jesus said about the scriptures, about the law, Matthew five eighteen to 19. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, that's the smallest detail in the Hebrew letters, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here we come back to this concept of speaking only God's words. And why? Have a look at this. It says, He who therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. We'll lose our reward if we teach wrong doctrine, if we teach bad stuff, if we lead people astray. We'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. We'll not be kicked out, but we'll be called least. We'll lose our reward. Why? Because bad doctrine leads to bad behavior and the wrong attitude. So, for example, fairly common today, the works gospel in many churches and cults. It leads to pride. And we don't want to be responsible for causing others to sin or causing them to stumble by encouraging them to have the wrong ideas about God and salvation. Now, the worst possible scenario is that our false teaching or poor example actually encourages others to reject Christ. So we need to be very careful. Our calling as a believer is a really high and noble calling. There's nothing more important than our calling in all the world. God has put in our hands and our hearts the words of life and death. And we must ask ourselves, is God pleading through me? Come back to God. Am I fulfilling the Great Commission? Am I fulfilling my purpose as a child of God? Am I an ambassador for Christ? And so basically, so far in this first three chapters of Ezekiel, it's being the call to ministry. And being a witness for Christ is our primary purpose in life. It's the most important part of our life. It's what God saved us for. We are a new creation to do what? to be ambassadors for Christ. So therefore, if that's true, we should be what we put most of our time and energy into, preparing ourselves and actually putting into practice. And Daniel 12.3 says there is a great reward for those who win souls. So I just want to point out it's not just what you say, it's also what you do. You can help people, you can be generous, you can do lots of different things, and your example is also very important. And verse 10, Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside. So now God opens up the scroll. Now usually the parchments, this is a quote from Block, usually parchments were only written on one side, 
The fact that it was written on both sides was implying not only a well-defined, but also a complete message. Ezekiel may not modify it with his own comments, nor does God allow himself any room for adjustments. So there's no room for any additions on this scroll. It's completely full. And now we come to the next section of our message, and I've called this a difficult message. And written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Great. God gives you a message, and it's lamentations, mourning and woe. A lamentation is something you sing at a funeral. So, not much good news for the Israelites at this stage. Because of their prolonged rebellion, it's pretty much repent of your sins and change your ways or else you will die. They're running out of chances. As a nation, they're running out of chances. God said, if you obey me, you can stay in the land. If you don't, you're out. And life will be pretty difficult for you. And they're running out of chances to stay in the land. So basically, the nation of Israel was continuing to rebel against God. And they were facing consequences for that. Now, this message of man's sinfulness and rebellion against God is, and this is a word that I like the meaning of, ubiquitous. <laughs> you heard the word before? Ubiquitous? It's um, ubiquitous. It means it's everywhere. It's universal. This message of man's sinfulness and rebellion against God is found throughout the Bible. And it's often been rejected by the majority of people, and especially, even spitefully, like it was in Jesus' day and Ezekiel's day, and even in our day. Now, why is this message rejected? Well, John 7 verse 7, Jesus said, The world hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Yeah. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 from the NLT paraphrase, it says, You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Now why? Well, it's pride. The Bible talks about pride. It was Lucifer's sin that caused him to fall. It's our Pride, which causes us to want to do things our way. So the refusal to accept our wretchedness, or the truth of our wretchedness, spiritual poverty and sinfulness, is what stops the majority of people from accepting God's gift of salvation. So instead, the opposite of humbling yourself and turning to God is in your pride, you harden your heart against God and rebel against God, and you choose the highway to hell, the wide and easy road. So why am I saying this? Well, only for this reason. The root cause of people's rejection of us and God's message is that they are not rejecting us, but the Father. So they're not rejecting us, they're not rejecting you or me, but they're rejecting the Father. Jesus clearly states this, and I'm going to read from John 15, 18-21 from the NLT paraphrase. It brings out the main point quite well. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Okay, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Now, this scripture is very pertinent for today's message too, so keep this in the back of your minds. 
I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me. For they have rejected the one who sent me. So notice that. They will do all this to you because of me. The reason is, for they have rejected the one who sent me. Who's that? It's the Father. The Father is calling us to be ambassadors for him. And that's our job. And as we've read before, it's not our responsibility if people reject it. It's their responsibility, but it's our responsibility to share it. Now, a small application here. This should cause us to have compassion on those people and not take this rejection personally. Where are they going? It's a lake of fire, right? Their rejection of the Father is causing them to go to the lake of fire forever. So we need to ask ourselves some very important questions. How far am I willing to go to reach the lost? How much rejection and ridicule am I willing to take? What am I prepared to lose or give up? For the sake of the gospel, how much do I really love those who are perishing? So now we move into chapter 3. And I've titled this, God must turn me upside down before I can turn the world upside down. So it's basically a summary of verses 1 to 11. And God says the same thing three times. And when God says something multiple times... You better listen. Yep, that's right. God didn't want Ezekiel to miss this message, and he doesn't want us to miss this message either. So what I've done in your notes there, I've bolded the command to eat the scroll, that is, to take in the Word of God, and then I've underlined the command to go and speak to the house of Israel. So this is very similar to the Great Commission. To go out. In Ezekiel's case, it's speak to the house of Israel. So I just want you to notice, this is always a pattern, and it can be seen in all the great people used in the Bible. Preparation precedes being used by God, and the preparation always involves eating the Word of God, of becoming familiar with the Word of God. So I'm just going to go through some selected verses from Ezekiel 3, 1-11, so you can see the theme how it's repeated three times. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. That was verses 1 and 2. And then verses 3 and 4, God repeats it. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly, and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. And then there's the commission. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. And then he repeats it. We go down to verse 10. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears. So it's the same thing, just different words. Make the word of God a part of you. You need to eat the word, so to speak. And then the commission in verse 11, and go. Get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord, whether they hear or whether they refuse. So, a principle here. The more I digest the word, 
or eat the word, the more I am changed by God to become like God, and therefore the more effective I am in sharing his word. And we can base that on 2 Corinthians 3.18, where we were changed from glory to glory into the image of the Lord by the Holy Spirit. Now, Acts 17.6-7, and this is my explanation for why I call this turning the world upside down, why we need to be turned upside down. It says in Acts 17, verses 6 and 7, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. This is in Thessalonica. Jason has harbored them. This is Paul and his friends, missionaries. And they are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So what's the accusation that these Jews are coming to the courts with? They want to get these people kicked out of their town. And so they're coming to the local court and they're basically saying, hey, these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar and saying there is another king, Jesus. So the unbelievers, I want you to notice three things here, right? The unbelievers could see clearly the difference in the way these believers acted as well as what they said. So they are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. They're all acting contrary or differently to the world system. Yeah? And they're all saying there is another king, Jesus. So instead of saying, this world is God, we should do what the world says, they're saying, no, we have a different authority, a higher authority. So the first thing is they could see the difference in the way they acted, the way they lived, and what they said. Secondly, God changed them first, and then he sent them out to change the world. And if you dig into the scriptures a bit, you notice with Paul, there was like 11 years of preparation for him, where he went back to Tarsus and he just matured and he studied the word, I guess, before Barnabas went and got him and brought him back to Antioch and they went off as being missionaries together. And the last thing I want you to notice here, the way they behaved and spoke was upside down or opposite to the ways of the world. So this phrase being, turning the world upside down, it just means that they're acting in a way which is opposite to the world. The world is all about living for yourself. The Christian message is all about living for God. The world is all about being selfish. The Christian message is all about being selfless. The world is all about being prideful and getting what you want. The Christian message is about being humble and working so that other people are blessed. The opposite is upside down. Now, someone said, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And these early Christians were so salty that they were stinging the consciences of the unbelievers around them. They were so pure and bright to look at as they reflected the glory of God that they made the unbelievers uncomfortable in their presence. And so I bring this out because this is the idea behind these verses in Ezekiel. The principle that preparation of the heart by ingesting the word of God is required to make us ready and able to be used by God. And those verses in Acts just help us to see what it looks like in practice. So let's jump into Ezekiel chapter 3. It says, Moreover he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. So a quote from John Corson, Here the Lord says to Ezekiel, Before you go out 
and give to others, chow down yourself. (laughs) Sometimes people who want to minister are not devoted to devouring the word of God themselves. The result is that we have a lot of messengers with very little message and a lot of ministers with very little to say. End of quote. So it's not just head knowledge, it's got to be a part of you. In verse 1 it says, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll. And so God repeats his command to Ezekiel, like we read in chapter 2, but this time the scroll is now in front of him. The scroll is the word of God, and as we mentioned last week, we need to prioritize our spiritual food just like we do our physical food. And a guy called Maya does an awesome job of explaining just why it's so important to eat the word and make it a part of us before we share it. And it's written for pastors, but we can apply it to all of us. It is specially incumbent or important, necessary, on those who have to go forth and speak, to open their mouths and eat the scroll. There is no greater mistake than to suppose that, because we are constantly handling God's word for the purpose of teaching and exhorting others, we are therefore feeding on it for ourselves. It is possible to acquire an intellectual knowledge of the truth while the heart is entirely unaffected. I'm going to read that again. It is specially incumbent on those who have to go forth and speak to open their mouths and eat the scroll. There is no greater mistake than to suppose that because we are constantly handling God's word for the purpose of teaching and exhorting others, we are therefore feeding on it for ourselves. It is possible to acquire an intellectual knowledge of the truth while the heart is entirely unaffected. So now I'm going to move on to talking about how do we do this in practice ourselves. So this is a warning for all of us, as I said before. In the absence of spending quality time with God in our personal devotions, any study for the Word doesn't reach our hearts, it just goes into our head. And now the other reasons we might study the Bible include for academic study, like you might be doing a course, Bible college, church, sermon preparation, staff or student devotions, like for me, Wonkatha, Bible study with other people, programs that we're involved in to overcome sin. Basically, any circumstance where you are studying the Bible because you're obligated to, because you have to, or because it's expected of you. And why? It all comes down to motive. Am I doing it to draw near to the Lord? Am I diving into the Word of God simply because I want to? So here are some searching questions that we should ask ourselves. Am I studying the Word because of my love for God or because I have to? Am I reading the Bible because I get to or because I got to? Is it by grace or works? So, what does it mean when I neglect my personal devotions? Well, Sorry, this is a hard thing, hard pill to swallow, but if we neglect our personal devotions, it means that we have decided that other things are more important than our relationship with God. It could be sleep, it could be study, pleasure, work, food, whatever it could be. Sin. So this is why whenever I neglect my relationship with God by not spending time seeking God through His Word, any other Bible study or preparation is for others and not for God. Because I'm doing it for the wrong motive. 
I've already decided that God is not the highest priority in my life. If he was, I would have gotten up early and spent time with him. So when I neglect my relationship with God, studying the Bible for other reasons is not an act of worship or drawing near to the Lord, but rather a work I do to impress others or just something I do only because I have to. Now, I was thinking about it and I came up with this illustration of being a chef. So you know what a chef does? They prepare food, yeah? So instead of eating the word for myself, I'm preparing it for others, but the food I prepare for others does me no good. I could be working in a restaurant as the master chef, you know? But if I don't eat the food, I'm going to starve to death. See, I can be feeding others, but not feeding myself. I can know all about food. I can have access to all kinds of nutritious food. But if I don't eat it myself, it would do me no good. So the real test of my devotion to God and my love for Him is the time I spend with Him each morning reading and studying His love letter to me for no other reason than to know God more intimately by hearing His voice through His Word. This is eating the Word of God. This is the litmus test for our love for God, the reality check that reveals the true condition of our hearts. Are we willing to eat the Word? Are we willing to read it just for ourselves, just so we can grow in our relationship with God? Now, love is a verb. DC Talk has a song called that. Love is a verb. Love is an action word. It's not just an emotion. And we prove our love for God by what we do and not by how we feel. Okay, remember that. We live by faith and not by sight. Living by sight is living by feelings. Living by faith is living by what we know is true. What God calls us to do. So here's a practical principle that will help you to not slip into this trap of going from grace to works, from your motivation changing from love to grudging obligation. This practical principle is this. What I study for personal devotions must have nothing to do with what I am preparing for others. Why? Because if it does, then I will never know my true motive. Is it for God or for other people? How will I know if I'm eating for myself, feeding myself, growing in my relationship with God, or I'm just being a spiritual chef, preparing meals for others, but starving my own spirit? So, it's all about guarding our hearts. And Proverbs 4.23 from the NLT paraphrase says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. So, personally, I found that when I miss my devotions, then my life or the rest of my study becomes kind of empty. It becomes like a work. But when I prioritize my personal devotions, my personal study of the Word, then what I do for others, the other study of the Word, does actually become valuable and life-changing for me as well. It does go down into me. So what I do for others becomes also food that I'm eating. Not only am I preparing, but I'm also eating at the same time. And it's great. But as I said before, if I skip my personal devotions, my study for church just becomes an academic pursuit 
to prepare a Bible study or sermon for other people. Why? Again, because my personal devotions are the evidence of a heart that is truly seeking God. So here's another important biblical principle that we must remember, and it's about preparing our heart. We must prepare our hearts. My establishing time for God is me preparing my heart to seek God. My making time to spend with God is me preparing my heart to seek God. So if I'm not choosing to spend time with God each morning, I'm not actively preparing my heart to seek the Lord. And there's some verses in your notes there. So just to summarize this, if I haven't taken the time to prepare my heart in morning devotions, then my heart will not be submitted to God, nor will I be able to receive or hear from God because I'm not prepared to receive from Him, to hear from Him. A couple of examples in the Old Testament, and you can study this out more yourself. The first one is a good example. It's in Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. You see how Ezra had to prepare the heart his heart, to seek the law of the Lord, to eat it, and then he did it, and then he could teach it. See the progression there? He prepared his heart. He said, I'm going to spend time with God. I'm going to seek him. As he was seeking him, he was reading the word. Then he was able to obey. He was strong enough to obey, and then he was able to teach. He was ready. He was prepared. In Second Chronicles 12.14, we have a negative example of someone not preparing their heart. And King Rehoboam, he was Solomon's son, started out well but finished poorly. He did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. He went well for three years, if you read the passage. Back in the uh, Old Testament there, in Second Chronicles. For three years, people were coming to him. Things were going great because he was doing the right thing. But you know what? As soon as he had the kingdom established, he turned from the Lord. Why? Because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. So he wasn't guarding his heart. His heart was being pulled away from God. So guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Again, if I'm not preparing my heart to seek God through his word, then I won't be seeking God. It's that simple. So getting my heart to a place where it is receptive to hear from God requires daily discipline. Jesus himself had to get away each morning to spend quality time with the Father. Mark 1.35 says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, Jesus went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. So, you know that phrase, don't mix business and pleasure? Well, for me, business is things I do for other people, study of the word for other people, and pleasure is what I do for myself. My quiet time is always reading a different part of the Bible than what I'm teaching on. So when I prioritize my personal devotions and Bible reading, and then most of the time my study for church deeply touches my heart as well. It becomes a part of me. I'm eating at the same time as I'm preparing. Chefs shouldn't do that, should they, in a kitchen? But I do. Not just tasting, eating lots. Why? Because my heart has been prepared to receive. 
I'm not just studying the Word of God as a means to an end. My heart has been prepared to receive and hear the Word of God. I'm doing it because I want to. And even if I didn't have to study for the Sunday service, I would do it anyway. It becomes a joy and not a burden. It's I get to, not I got to. And what I share with others becomes a lot more powerful and effective. And then we come to the second part of this theme, eat the word of God, and then the commission to go. So in the end of verse 1 it says, and go speak to the house of Israel. So this is acting out a spiritual truth. Ezekiel must receive and internalize and digest the word of God before he could be a messenger of that word to the house of Israel. And that was David Guzik. Uh, verses 2 and 3 in Ezekiel 3. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. Now, coming back to this vision, like you don't eat scrolls. We're not actually, God isn't asking us to eat pages from your Bible. Okay? So this is a vision. So it would have seemed really real to Ezekiel. And it would have been amazing to experience this. But it was a vision. It didn't happen in the real world, so to speak. Okay? Chapters 1 through 3 are part of this massive vision that Ezekiel had with the four cherubim and the glory of the Lord, etc. Now it says in verse 3, And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with the scroll that I give you. So I ate. So another principle here. How much do we eat? Until we are full. Yeah. Now how much is that? <laughs> are you ever going to be full? <laughs> no. That means you keep eating. It's going to take time and commitment on our part to remain at the table, so to speak, and keep eating what God gives us morning by morning. But you know, who wouldn't want to receive what God gives? Who wouldn't want to eat God's spiritual breakfast every morning, enjoying sweet fellowship with our Abba Father? And then he says, Son of man, feed your belly. So, whose responsibility is it to be fed? Is it God's responsibility or is it ours? It's ours. He says, Son of man, feed your belly. God is not going to do it for us. This is where it takes our discipline, our choice, where love becomes a verb. Love becomes more than an emotion. It becomes a choice of our will to spend time with God. And a simple phrase to remember is this. If I am to grow, then I must choose to eat. If I am to grow my Christian walk, then I must choose to eat. And then verse 3, it says, So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. So <laughs> the blessing that comes from eating the words of God and being transformed into the image of God, it's a beautiful process. It hurts. Yes, it does hurt as God reveals sin in our lives. But the joy that comes after repentance is just beautiful. And the joy only comes after repentance, after the change. So it was not only sweet and delicious, but as sweet as the sweetest thing he had ever tasted before. And living in that time would be honey. So basically what he's saying is, there was nothing sweeter or more desirable or more satisfying than the Word of God. And Psalm 119 verse 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So sweeter than honey. More satisfying, more delicious. Now, some people say they don't find the word of God very sweet. 
Spurgeon gives a reason for this. If the word of God be not very sweet to me, have I an appetite? Solomon says, The full soul loathes honeycomb, but to the hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. Ah, when a soul is full of itself and of the world and of the pleasures of sin, I do not wonder that it sees no sweetness in Christ, for it has no appetite. That was again from Spurgeon on his commentary on, or sermon on Psalm 119 verse 103. So, you probably experienced going around to someone's house and they've got a lovely dinner on the table, but you've just eaten and you're just not hungry. You know? So, God's got his dinner on the table each morning and your belly's full of other things. Well, my belly's full of other things, you know, and that happens sometimes. Another quote from a guy called Morgan The prophet declared that having eaten the scroll, he found it in his mouth as honey for sweetness. And by this declaration reveals that whereas the ministry he was about to exercise would be difficult, yet he himself was in perfect accord with the purpose of God and found delight in his will. So this sweetness, this relationship, I want to go back to Jesus. Psalm 40 is messianic. Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. So this is applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And also Jesus said in John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So in other words, this whole concept is that it's sweet, nourishing and satisfying for Jesus and us to walk in obedience to the Father. And this is the joy of abiding in Christ, of experiencing the joy of walking with the Lord, no matter how dark or difficult the days may be. And this is what Jesus wants for us as well. So notice again the connection between God's word remaining in our hearts, us eating it, and the resulting obedience and joy that follows. So John 15, 7-11 from the Amplified Bible. It says, If you live in me, abide vitally united to me, and my words remain in you and continue to live in your hearts, ask whatever you will, and it shall be done for you. When you bear or produce much fruit, my Father is honoured and glorified, and you show and prove yourselves to be true followers of mine. I have loved you, just as the Father has loved me. Abide in my love, continue in his love with me. If you keep my commandments, if you continue to obey my instructions, you will abide in my love and live on in it, just as I have obeyed my Father's commandments and live on in his love. Verse 11 is the most important, it's the main point here. I have told you these things, that my joy and delight may be in you, and that your joy and gladness may be of full measure and complete and overflowing. Don't you love that? I have told you these things, that my joy and delight may be in you, and that your joy and gladness may be a full measure and complete and overflowing. So, what I want to suggest to you is that God wants to give us more than what the world can offer. 
but it's like the old, you know, you put a banana in a jar and the monkey puts his hand in there. That's how you trap a monkey, right? The, the monkey won't let go of the banana. You heard of that before? So the monkey's trapped. He won't let go of the banana. And that's like Satan's trick with us. Satan puts things of the world, temptations, pleasures, whatever, and we grab onto it and we're stuck. We can't get a hand out of the jar. We can't experience the pleasures, the heavenly satisfaction, the joy, until we let go, take a hand out of that jar and put it into God's jar. Does that make sense? So we must be willing to give up the worldly pleasures to experience the heavenly pleasures that will only follow submission and obedience to the Word of God. We will never know or experience the heavenly pleasure and satisfaction that God offers until we are willing to, by faith, let go of the worldly pleasures. Now this is where faith comes into it. Will I, by faith, believe that what God says is true? Or will I believe Satan's lie? that God is nasty and mean and wants to keep the good stuff from me, and that I can really find greater satisfaction and contentment in the world. Because if we're choosing sin over God, if we're choosing to do other things and be in his word and seek a relationship with him, that's what we're believing. I'm going to find my ultimate satisfaction, my pleasure, my fulfillment in the world and not in Christ. So notice what Jesus said in John 15, 7. If my words remain in you and continue to live in your hearts. Where does the word have to be? In our head or in our hearts? It's in our hearts, yeah. So eating the word of God results in us obeying the word of God, which results in us abiding with God and remaining or experiencing God's love, which is the source of complete and overflowing joy. And that's why Ezekiel could say it was sweet like honey. Even though he was sent to a very difficult people who were going to be hurting him and rebelling and rejecting his message. So I'm going to finish with an application. Our authority to speak God's words comes from how we live and not just what we say. And this is just another way of saying what we've been talking about before, but bringing in a few other principles as well. So I'm going to start with Luke 4.32. It says, And they were astonished, at Jesus' teaching, for his word was with authority. Now, what gave Jesus his authority? Well, David Guzek says, the authority of Jesus was not only evident as he taught, but also in his life. And that's the end of that quote. People will only listen to us, especially our families and our friends, if what we say matches what we do and who we are. Jesus had tremendous authority because everything that he did matched with what he taught. My dad once said to me, do what I say, but don't do what I do. And I said, fat chance. <laughs> if you don't want to be a good example to me, there's no way I'm going to do what you tell me to do. You know? We can't tell unbelievers, this is what you need to do. If we're not living it ourselves, you see. And I never actually said that to my dad out loud, but I thought it. You know, I remember to this day my dad telling me that, and I said, nah. <laughs> so Jesus said only those things that please God, and Jesus only did those things that please God. 
and you can see John 5, 19 and 8, 29, Jesus had a genuine relationship with God. He was real. So if we are seeking satisfaction from the world and are not willing to give up worldly pleasures and sin, then our hearts will go hard and we'll become like those who we are trying to win to Christ. <laughs> Isn't that funny? How are we going to try and tell them that what we have is better if we start living like them, you know? And what do we call that? It's called being hypocrite. So those around us, and this is a principle I found to be true, those around us will see the change in us long before we do. And that's both for good and for evil. So if we start falling away from the Lord, we'll think we're doing all right, but people around us will see it straight away. They'll see the change in attitude. They'll see the little slips in what we're saying. We won't notice, but they will. And the opposite is also true. If we start getting into the Word, our language will change. Our attitude will change. We'll become less selfish, and we won't notice, but other people will. So I'm going to read Hebrews 3, 12 to 13 from the NLT paraphrase. It says, Be careful then. And this is the main principle I want to talk about in our closing application here. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. Have you ever thought that you got away with your sin? Anyone ever thought, that, oh, I got away with that, no one's going to know, who cares? You will never get away with your sin. No one may seem to notice that we aren't reading the word each day, or that we start to rush it, or just give lip service to it. Like, I've done that, tick that box. No one sees the sins we do in secret more and more frequently, nor do they know the changing the desires of our hearts towards worldly pleasures. We continue to go to church, go to work, pray for families and friends, attend Bible studies, whatever it might be. So on the outside, everything seems normal and okay, but what's happening to our hearts? So just dwelling on this theme a bit. We may be refusing to give up worldly pleasures that are holding us back from progressing as a believer, like TVs, movies, gaming, drugs, alcohol, worldly friends. There's lots of other things too. We may be continuing in sin that is harmful to us, like addictions that are keeping us under Satan's control. We do things that please Satan and not the things that please God. And on the other side of things, the sins of omission, the things we don't do, we may be slow to obey a command that God has given us to obey, like being faithful to give generously or talk to that person or neighbor that God keeps putting on your heart or your mind, or take up a role in ministry and serve in some capacity. So all of these things have one thing in common. They are disobedience to the Word of God, which is the same thing as refusing to submit to God's authority over our lives. So again, this question, what happens to our hearts when we resist and rebel against God? Well, we are deceived by sin and our hearts become hardened against God. We think we are getting away with our sin. We think there are no consequences, but there are. And the worst consequence is that our hearts become hardened against God. Our relationship with God will begin to wilt and die. And we will. And I know from personal experience, it's much quicker and to a much greater extent than we realize. We become very much like the world in our attitudes and beliefs. 
So that is why God first asked Ezekiel to eat the scroll, to digest the word of God, so that it became a part of him. So the principle that we've talked about before is that when the word becomes a part of us, it changes us to become more like Christ. It has to. That's the whole purpose of eating it. You become what you eat for good and for evil. Someone said the Bible will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from the Bible. Remember that quote from Spurgeon about the appetite? Yep. So have you noticed just how quickly our desire for the Word of God diminishes when we choose sin over God? How difficult it becomes to find the time or motivation to read the Bible? <laughs> and thankfully, the opposite is also true. I can look back in my life and see both of these, the positive and the negative. Have you ever noticed how quickly your desire to read the Word increases when we truly repent of our sin? and become genuine about setting our hearts on seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matthew 6.33 We've talked about this before. God asks us to seek him with our whole heart. Yeah, our whole heart. Half-hearted obedience won't cut it. You can't expect to keep a little of the world and think that you can draw near to God. We need to draw near to God with our whole heart. Otherwise, as we've read before, we will be double-minded and unstable in all our ways, James 1, 8 and 4, 8. Romans 12, 1 and 2, it calls for total surrender. Why? Because that's logical, that's reasonable. God has done so much for us, and all God wants for us is to submit to him. He's done so much for us. We're not doing it because we have to. We're doing it out of a thankful heart because we want to. Our total surrender to God is not forced. It's done with a thankful heart. It must be done with a thankful heart. Now, you say, but I'm not perfect and I never will be. And that's true for all of us. But we are all growing. <laughs> Did you know they're always growing? Either to be more like Christ or more like the world. We are either, by faith and by the power of the Spirit, swimming upstream against the current of this world, or... We're being pushed downstream by the current of the world. There is no middle ground. We're either swimming up or we're being pushed down. Now, again, no one is expecting perfection from us. No unbeliever expects us to be perfect. Everybody knows that. But what they are expecting is change. If what I say I believe is true, then I should be growing to be less worldly and more Christ-like. It's only when people around us see this change in us they will know that our relationship with God is real and therefore want the same for themselves so if you're not perfect that's good it just means you're human but are you growing can people see the change in your life to become more Christ-like are you getting rid of the sinful things in your life and replacing them with good things is your attitude changing towards other people becoming less selfish more loving so the point here is that the depth of my walk with God, how much I choose to love God, determines the extent that I can be used by God. And we've covered this before in 2 Timothy 2, 20-22. And coming back to Ezekiel, and therefore it also affects my effectiveness in willing others to Christ, sharing the message with them. So the closer my walk with God, the more of a real or genuine Christian I am, and therefore the greater my impact on the world around me. My light shines brighter, bring more glory to God. And I'm more salty. And you can read Matthew 5, 13 to 16 about the salt and light there. So how can I say I love those around me and want to see them saved 
if I'm not willing to sacrifice worldly pleasures so I can live a holy life and put God first? Well, I can't, can I? It all comes down, it all comes back to the condition of my heart. If I'm lacking in love for others, I can't just manufacture that. It's a deeper problem. It's because I'm lacking in love for God. So, conclusion. Our motive for feeding on the Word must be for our own personal relationship with God and not for anyone else or anything else. We need to be disciplined and ready to count the cost of what it will take to prepare our hearts to seek God with our whole heart, making God the most important part of our lives. That means getting rid of the sin and making that time to spend with Him. So we actually have the appetite, yeah? Get rid of the sin so you get appetite for the things of God. If we choose not to prepare our hearts, if we don't ingest the Word of God, if we don't eat it, it becomes a part of us, then we will be ineffective and weak in whatever ministry God calls us to do. Head knowledge is not good enough. Head knowledge does not reach or change the heart. As someone said, head knowledge only puffs up. That's what Paul says in Corinthians too. So will we be like Ezekiel and obey God's command too? I'm just going to quote from sections of the verses in chapter 3. Are we going to eat this scroll, feed your belly, and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you? Receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you, and hear with your ears, and then go, get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. So Father, I just do pray that you help us today to meditate on these things, to have an honest evaluation of ourselves and where we're at in our relationship with you. Do I have an appetite? How hungry am I for the word of God? Am I making the time to spend with you? Am I choosing to honour you with my time and make you the first priority in my life and choose to study your word just for myself, just for, for us, Father? Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you will remind us all of your great compassion that you have for us. Psalm 103. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities us. He knows our frame. He knows that we are weak. We just like dust. And so, Father, this is not a condemnation, but it is necessary for us to grow. We need to recognize where we're at so we can move forward. And need to recognize what's stopping us from growing so we can deal with those things, repent and move forward. So I pray that you will help us to all grow and be changed from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord, as we eat your word for ourselves, as we make that choice to do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.